chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19, and uh, the first 18 verses of that chapter. Um, 1 Kings kind of buried in the Old Testament a little bit, so if you open your Bible uh, right to the middle, you'll probably hit Psalms, start working your way leftward, um, and it goes like this, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles then, so kind of in between Samuel and Chronicles, you can find it. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 18, 1 Kings. Um, before we dive into God's Word together, I want to share with you an announcement uh, about a medical missions trip we have coming up. There's a lot of folks in our community who are connected to the medical industry because of our, the proximity uh, to both of the Beaumont hospitals, also a lot of medical students at OU and Wayne State um, doing their residencies around here. And so uh, we have put together a trip to Thailand February 8th through the 18th. Um, my wife and I are planning on going, um, even though we know next to nothing about uh, medical work. Uh, my dad is a doctor, if that counts for something. Uh, I've put on some Band-Aids before, um, several kids. Um, <clears throat> but we're going to go and try to be a support and an assistance to that team. But mostly what we need um, are medical industry workers of whatever kind. Um, we have a long-standing partner in Thailand, a uh, brother named Akka John is the pastor of a church, the leader of an orphanage um, in Thailand, um, and there are villages that they can only gain access to uh, with medical clinics that we set up one day at a time. Um, so we'll do that and share the gospel, try to build relationships, and Thailand really is in a unique location to be able to reach China. Uh, the Akka people, who John is reaching, uh, also have several million of them in China. So if we can reach the Akka people in Thailand, there's a bridge into what is mostly a closed country um, that is uh, the People's Republic of China. So this is a really strategic partnership. We want to try to pour into these people, help expand their ministry for the sake of the gospel to every tribe, tongue, nation on earth. So it may seem like a long way away, February 8th through 18th, but it's a big trip. We also have a lot of money to raise as well, so we want to do that really intentionally. Um, so if you are a medical worker, please reach out to me. Uh, if you know Meg, touch base with Meg. Also, Megan Moore is a, a member here, a resident at OU, or a medical student at OU, and uh, she's planning on going as well. So hopefully it'll be a really great team, but uh, thanks for taking that announcement. All right, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. You know, this is just 18 verses buried right in the middle of the Old Testament, so I, I sort of want to zoom out um, before we get into the particulars of Elijah's life and everything going on there, I sort of want to zoom out and help us see the bigger picture of the Old Testament. You guys remember last week I had a Microsoft PowerPoint created, or uh, Microsoft Paint created uh, slide for you, but I've updated it um, and a couple of new features as well. So you can see this one here. Um, oh yeah, very impressive. Um, <clears throat> this will help us zoom in. Uh, there should be a you are here button uh, on, on this timeline, but we're going to try to lead us up there. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and very soon his creation was infected by sin, Genesis 1 through 3. But then God graciously has not finished his work in the world, and so he gives promises in Genesis chapter 12 to a man named Abram, who eventually is renamed to Abraham. God gives promises to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through you. The world is cursed because of sin, but I'm going to reverse the curse and bless all peoples through you and your descendants. So Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob, holy moly, has 12 sons. And those 12 sons, by the end of the book of Genesis, start to multiply themselves so that by the beginning of the second book of the Bible, there are hundreds of thousands of Abraham's descendants. And they've migrated to the country that still exists today, Egypt. They're eventually brought into slavery in Egypt. But God raises up a man named Moses, and God leads his people out of Egypt through Moses' leadership in this really well-known event called the Exodus. If you don't have time to read about it, there's a Disney movie called The Prince of Egypt. That will catch you up to speed. It's on Disney+. Plus. I'm just kidding. Read the Bible. Um, after he leads them out of Egypt, starts to take them back to the promised land, God gives his law to his people through Moses. You remember the, the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic 
covenant, the Mosaic code. This was meant to form the way that God's people lived and to inform the way that God's people worshiped. But eventually, God's people don't just want his law. God's people don't just want to be a people. They want to be a kingdom. And they want a man to sit on the throne amongst them. And so they ask for one. God gives them one. Saul is the first king over Israel. He's sort of a false start. He's dethroned. And then God raises up the shepherd boy, David. And David is anointed over Israel as its king. He's given promises in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then the Davidic throne, the Davidic monarchy begins going forward from there. You have his son, Solomon, who takes the throne after him. And then you have David's grandson, Rehoboam, who takes the throne after him. And it's under King Rehoboam. There's a, oh, somebody corrected it for me. Will, you're the man. It said, it said kingdom divided under Solomon last service, but he changed it to Rehoboam. Man, that is service. Look at that. <laughs> so this is correct. The kingdom is divided under Rehoboam. It only takes three generations of kings. And God's people are divided, north and south. There's a northern kingdom that keeps the name Israel, and there's a southern kingdom that takes the name Judah, because that's where the tribe of Judah was, and that's where Jerusalem, the capital city, was in Judah. So they go by Judah. So it can be kind of confusing. Sometimes in the Old Testament, when it's referring to Israel, it's referring to that northern kingdom. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it's referring to all of God's people. So you just have to read the context to know. Um, during this time, because God's people are divided and because they're infected by sin and idolatry and compromised with foreign nations, God raises up prophets to rebuke his people, to call them back to covenant faithfulness with the law of God given through Moses. These prophets are men like Hosea, Amos, and Jonah who ministered in the northern kingdom and also the big guys, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel who ministered in the southern kingdom. Well, one of our guys in the northern kingdom is Elijah. He's one of the prophets God raised up to rebuke God's people, to rebuke God's king, and call them back to covenant faithfulness with the Lord. Um, there's also some evidence that Elijah was in the southern kingdom as well. We're going to see that even in our passage today. Uh, but nevertheless, that's the brother whose life we're studying today, Elijah. It started in 1 Kings chapter 17, where Elijah just kind of appears on the scene and he predicts a drought. He predicts a famine that is going to come upon God's people in the northern kingdom. He tells King Ahab this. And this announcement of a drought was also an announcement of judgment. This drought didn't just come out of nowhere. This drought came because of Ahab's compromise, marrying the foreign woman Jezebel. The issue with Jezebel is not that she was a foreigner. The issue with Jezebel is that she was an idolater. And Ahab wedded himself to an idolater Jezebel and led his people into idolatry as well. You remember the false god Baal. Well, that leads us up to a certain point within our text this morning, uh, but I also want to set this up in another way. I wonder if you've ever heard statements like this before. I don't believe in God because there's no evidence he exists. Faith in God sounds nice, but at the end of the day, religion is irrational, and so I don't believe. Perhaps you've heard statements like this before from friends or family members, people in the media. But especially since the 16th century, roughly 500 years ago, the modern era began, at least in Europe. The modern era began with this intellectual movement called the Enlightenment. It was also referred to as the Age of Reason. And during this time, the school of philosophy known as empiricism was born. Empiricism was an effort to obtain the truth using human senses and the human senses alone. And of course, this affected the way people thought about religion. Belief in God has to be provable according to the human senses, according to empirical evidence. And so you had a lot of believers trying to prove God's existence with evidence-based arguments, and you had a lot of non-believers, many still today, saying things like, I don't believe in God because there's no evidence He exists. Religion sounds nice, but at the end of the day, it's irrational, and so I don't believe. 
However, the witness of Scripture is that our relationship with evidence for God is much more complicated than that. For example, no one in Jesus' life, even in his trial, no one ever accused Jesus of not actually performing miracles. Because there was way too many witnesses, there was way too much empirical, tangible evidence for Jesus' miracles for them to be denied. So the evidence was there, the evidence was everywhere that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God. But despite all that evidence, many did not believe, and they did not believe so intensely that they had him crucified. So this is the Bible's way of subtly showing us how twisted and darkened our hearts are by sin. Because no amount of evidence, no amount of proof is ever going to ultimately win us over to God. Historically, philosophically, scientifically, is there evidence for God? Absolutely, I think so. But our hearts are so spiritually corrupt that we can always find a way to interpret the evidence not in God's favor. Just like what happened with Jesus There's no greater demonstration of God's presence and power than Jesus, and yet we killed him. Such is the human heart. Well, a similarly compelling demonstration of God's presence and power has just occurred in 1 Kings chapter 18. You remember, God showed up on Mount Carmel, and he proved that Baal is a false god and that the Lord is the true God. You remember there is this God contest in 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah sets up this showdown between himself and the Lord against Baal and all his prophets. Each God has a sacrifice and the challenge is to pray down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. And whichever God shows up is the winner. So Baal's prophets go first, and despite their intense devotion, despite their loud prayers, Baal does not show up. Hours go by, and Baal's sacrifice remains sitting on the altar. And then it's Elijah's turn. And with one simple prayer, the Lord responds and dramatically consumes the sacrifice with fire. And remember during that scene on Mount Carmel, there are thousands of people witnessing this. There's the prophet Elijah who's there. There's King Ahab who's there. There's hundreds of Baal's prophets. There's thousands upon thousands of Israelites who all witnessed them. They then condemn Baal's prophets to death. And then Elijah prays again. You remember this from last week. Elijah prays seven times and the promised rain shows up, ending the three and a half year drought. And there's yet another sign of God's favor and power in this rain. Then Elijah and King Ahab go back to Jezreel, the capital city of the northern kingdom. That's where we left off from last week. Elijah was leading King Ahab back to Jezreel. And Elijah's riding high at this point, isn't he? He's just defeated Baal at this showdown, proving to all of Israel that Baal is a false god, proving that the Lord is the true God. And then he prays down this famine-ending drought, this famine-ending rain, and I can imagine that he is hoping to see revival in the northern kingdom as he heads back to Jezreel. He is expecting to see a huge change of heart amongst the people and King Ahab. After all, God just proved that he is God. The Lord just miraculously showed up in multiple ways. So surely Ahab, surely Jezebel, surely all of the people will now repent of their idolatry, right? I mean, with all this evidence, with all this favor from God, surely the faith of Ahab, surely the faith of the people will be renewed and strengthened, right? Well, let's read what happens next, and let's read how Elijah responds to what happens next. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. King Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how Elijah had killed all the prophets of Baal with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, 
So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. But Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked the Lord that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And Elijah lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched Elijah and said to him, Arise, eat. And Elijah looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And Elijah ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And Elijah arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And the word of the Lord said to Elijah, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by Elijah, and a great and strong wind tore through the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to Elijah, go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So right away in chapter 19, we immediately find out that King Ahab still does not believe in God. Specifically, he does not believe that the Lord is God. We know this because despite witnessing the power and presence of God in chapter 18, he still allows Jezebel to pursue in order to kill Elijah. Ahab doesn't care that Elijah is clearly God's prophet. Ahab doesn't care that the true God has made himself known so spectacularly. He still doesn't believe that the Lord is God. That's what we find out right away about Ahab at the start of chapter 19. By contrast, here's what we see about Elijah in this chapter. Not only does he simply believe the Lord is God, he is passionate about the Lord being God. So twice in this chapter, verses 10 and 14, Elijah declares, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. When you think about the experience of jealousy, it's a yearning, it's a longing, it's a deep, emotionally effective desire for the object of your jealousy. 
Well, Elijah is jealous. He's zealous. He's passionate for God. And more specifically, Elijah is passionate that the Lord would receive worship and honor from his people. God's people had been worshiping foreign gods, man-made gods like Baal. And so Elijah feels jealousy for this. He longs for Israel to know and love their God, the true God. So what we're witnessing in this chapter is Elijah experiencing extreme disappointment. Elijah is jealous that God be glorified by his people, but the people's king won't repent. The people's king, Ahab, won't acknowledge who the true God is, and he's still allowing his foreign, idolatrous wife to influence him. So church, what I want you to take away from this passage this morning is that passion for God does not excuse us from major disappointment. Elijah had high hopes that Ahab would repent. Elijah had confidence that God's people would renew their trust in God. How could they not? How could they not repent and renew their faith right after such a remarkable display of God's presence and power at Mount Carmel? But Ahab doesn't repent. And so subsequently, we do not see renewed faith amongst God's people. And Elijah is crushed. His high hopes riding into Jezreel are now obliterated. So believer in Jesus, I wonder what it is for you. You who are here this morning and you're passionate about God, I wonder what it is for you. When was it that your high hopes were dashed like this? Could be any number of things, but maybe you had the expectation of getting a certain job. All the signs were there, the jobs were yours, interview went great, references checked out, the salary is going to finally be the financial solution you've been praying for, but the offer never came. Or maybe you had the high hope of starting a family. You met the right person, so you thought you guys had chemistry, it seemed like. God gave you the desire to marry this person, you assumed, but for whatever reason now, still you remain unmarried. Or maybe you had the high hope of staying married. You met the person of your dreams, you got married, you had kids, you went to church, but things go sideways, way sideways. And now you find yourself divorced. These are just a few examples off the top of my head, but what is it for you? When was it that your hopes were dashed? Like Elijah, you love God, you live for God, you're passionate about God, so you want your job, your marriage, your family, your everything to glorify Him, but you experience the crushing weight of disappointment even when you were doing things God's way even when you were motivated by God's glory. The crushing weight of disappointment still comes upon you. Well, that's where Elijah's at. He is broken. He's so broken, he's going to say in verse 4, God, take my life. And the translators have softened it. It's the Hebrew word mavet, which means to kill. He says, God, kill me. Why am I even here? There's no hope. Kill me, God. It's jarring to hear the man of God say this. It's jarring to hear the prophet say this. But he is so utterly broken and desperate and disappointed. So this morning, as we look at the rest of this chapter, I want us to focus on how God responds to Elijah in his disappointment. We learn a lot about God from the spectacular display of chapter 18, but I think we may learn some even more important things about the more humbler chapter 19. So how does God respond to us in our brokenness and disappointment? First, we see that God's heart is understanding. God's heart is understanding. Another way to say this is that God's heart is compassionate. He feels for you. 
His heart is tender towards Elijah. God shows understanding of the struggle Elijah is going through. He doesn't judge Elijah. He doesn't rebuke Elijah. Instead, he shows compassion, tenderness, and understanding towards Elijah. The first way we see this is in verses 5 through 8. Elijah has now fled from Jezreel, seeing that Ahab and Jezebel won't repent. He goes into the wilderness to be alone and avoid death from Jezebel's army. He lays down under a broom tree and prays that God would take his life and then goes to sleep. And I fully expect that he did not assume he would wake up from that sleep. Elijah had a lot of prayers answered in the last two chapters. He makes this prayer that God would take his life, and I assume he laid down going to sleep expecting that God would do so. He didn't think he'd wake up in this life. But what does God do? He wakes Elijah up to a warm, freshly baked cake and a jar of water. And he does this two different times. Because there's something about giving someone a meal when they're going through a difficult time. It's almost instinctive for us. Oh, you're struggling? Let me take you out to breakfast this week. Oh, you just had a baby? Let me start a meal train and some friends of mine will bring you meals for the next several days. Oh, you just lost a loved one? I'd love to bring you dinner one night this week if that'd be helpful. Last December, my family and I moved into our new house just down the street when I started working here. And we didn't have to cook dinner for nearly a month. Because so many of you guys gave us gift cards, ordered us takeout, cooked meal for us. And why did you guys do that? It's because you all understand moving is hard, especially when you have four kids under 10. Changing houses is a trial sometimes, and you wanted to show compassion to us. So what did you instinctively do? Gave us food. So it is the Lord's heart towards Elijah. He has a heart of understanding, even though he is God. Overall, forever blessed, he still sympathizes and pities Elijah. Elijah feels like death, and so God gives him sustenance. Then we see more of evidence of God's compassion Moving on from the wilderness outside of Jezreel, Elijah then journeys 40 days towards the southern kingdom, Judah, to Mount Horeb, and he's in a cave in Mount Horeb, and God speaks to Elijah. God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now think about this. The God of the universe, the true and holy God, speaks to Elijah. And he doesn't declare some mysterious eternal truth. He doesn't reveal some secret divine knowledge. And he certainly does not chastise Elijah for feeling so disappointed and hopeless. Instead, God asks a question. And I contend that this is more evidence of God's understanding heart. God understands that Elijah is going through a lot. He understands that Elijah needs to unburden his soul by verbalizing what's troubling him. So God, through this question, he invites Elijah to unload the anxieties of his heart. God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds, sharing his burdens. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel forsaken your covenant. The people of Israel have thrown down your altars. The people of Israel have killed your prophets with the sword, and I, only I, am left. And now they seek to take away my life. So Elijah is very blunt with the Lord here. He's invited to speak his complaint before God, and he accepts the invitation. God, I've been jealous for you, very jealous for you and your glory, but look at what it's come to. Your covenant is forsaken by your people. Your altars are desecrated by idolatry. Your prophets are killed with the sword, and I'm the only one left. 
So through this question, Elijah, what are you doing here? God gives Elijah the chance to transparently share exactly what's upsetting him, and Elijah takes the opportunity. God knows, God understands, Elijah needs to express his pent-up emotions to him. Have you ever been around someone and all they do is talk about themselves? It's like they have a spiritual gift of turning every conversation to somehow center on them, no matter what you're talking about. They tell you their stories, they tell you their experiences, they tell you their thoughts, it's endless. But by contrast, have you ever spent time with someone who asks you good questions about yourself? They listen to you and then they ask thoughtful questions to draw more out about you. They're interested, they're curious, they want to hear from you. Guys, this is God. He comes to Elijah in Elijah's disappointment not to share advice. He comes to Elijah in Elijah's disappointment not even to talk about himself. No, he comes to Elijah with compassion, with tenderness, with understanding. And he shows that with this question, inviting Elijah to unburden his heavy heart. In Psalm 103, verses 13 through 14, David writes, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For the Lord knows our frame." And he remembers that we are but dust. God has compassion on us. And he knows what we're made of. God knows that you are not Superman. And can't carry it all. God knows that you aren't Superwoman. And can't figure everything out. He knows that we're made of mere dust. In other words, God knows that we are human. He knows our frame. He knows we're limited. And he doesn't expect us to be emotionless and unaffected by the disappointments in life. No, he wants us to pour out our souls before him in prayer, right? Even Jesus, as he hung on the cross, even Jesus, as he experienced such pain and such injustice dying in our place, he felt agony and cried out, my God, my God, why? So like Jesus, like Elijah, this is the way to draw close to the Father's heart by sharing our thoughts, sharing our feelings, sharing our frustration even. God can take it, guys. He's not afraid of what's inside of you. No matter how dark it may be, no matter how on the edge of blasphemous it may feel, God is not afraid. He can take it. He's not scared of your complaint. In fact, He invites you to verbalize the troubles of your heart. How does God respond to us in our brokenness and disappointment? First, we see that He has a heart of understanding. Secondly, we see that His word is enough. God's word is enough for you and your disappointment. So Elijah is standing on Mount Horeb at the edge of this cave, and he's looking out across the landscape over the other mountains and valleys below. God asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah shares his frustrations and disappointment. Then verse 11 says that God responds by passing by Elijah and a great and strong wind tore through the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. So once more, Elijah sees a spectacular display of God's power over creation. God sends this wind that splits rocks. God literally then shakes the earth with an earthquake. Finally, a fire blazes through, consuming the mountainside shrubbery. But for each one of these remarkable manifestations of God's power, the writer notes that the Lord was not in the wind. 
The Lord was not in the earthquake. The Lord was not in the fire. And then verse 12 says, after the fire, there was the sound of a low whisper. And the implication is that the Lord is in the Lord's, is in the whisper, the low whisper. So up until this point in Elijah's ministry, he has seen some breathtaking, dramatic things. He saw the Lord miraculously provide food for the widow. He saw the Lord raise the widow's son from the dead. He saw the Lord consume the sacrifice on Mount Carmel. He saw the Lord provide the promised rain. And now he's seeing this bizarre, spectacular display of an earthquake, of a great wind, and a blazing fire. But at the end of it all, we're told that the Lord's voice is just this still, small whisper. And this seems to be a way of communicating to Elijah that all you need is God's word. As great as it can be, God's people don't need stunning, visible, audible displays of God's word. What we just need, the one thing necessary, is God's word. Even a low whisper of God's word is enough to sustain us. So Elijah here is in the middle of this 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And many of you know that Jesus is recorded to have had a similar 40-day, 40-night sojourn in the wilderness right before his ministry started. It was a time of testing. It was a time of temptation for Jesus, an experience of relying on the Father through fasting and prayer just before he launched into his ministry. And during that time, it's clear that Jesus is meditating on Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, because he quotes that verse when Satan comes to tempt him. That verse reads like this, man shall not live by bread alone, but man shall live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Elijah needed to know this. We need to know this. Jesus did know this. We don't necessarily need spectacular displays of God's power and presence. God gives them sometimes, and that's great, and they have their place, but ultimately, the one thing necessary, the thing we live off, is the life-giving Word of God. So I want to say this. I hope you are not here this morning listening to this sermon hoping to be entertained. I hope you are not here listening to this sermon just because this is your Sunday morning tradition. I hope that you are here, church, to eat. That's my prayer for you every week. Church, feed your people with your word. Our hearts are heavy, our souls are weary, our bodies are tired, but you give life, you, God, give nourishment through the power of your preached word. And so may you come here on Sunday morning hungry, and may you leave here on Sunday morning full. I got to say this, I don't care if you leave here Sunday morning saying, I liked that sermon. I don't care if you leave here on Sunday morning saying, I liked that preacher. Not that I don't care about those things. I do have a tender heart. <laughs> but I know I shouldn't care if you say that. And I don't care if you say that. What I hope is that you leave here full you ever walked out of a steak restaurant and you got to walk it off because you're just so, oh. oh, may God give you that experience having fed on his word Sunday mornings. My wife and I, our favorite restaurant is Jay Alexander's. And I don't want to leave that time being with my wife, but I am so bloated with bread and meat and butter and whatever else. I got to walk it off. I'm always like, babe, we got to go. And thankfully, Jay Alexander's is in Somerset Mall, so we can join the rest of the walkers going around the mall, look at the stuff, and I can kind of ease off a bit because I am so full. And that is my hope for you. Not that you're entertained, not that I'm trying to be boring, 
But at the same time, my hope is not that you leave here entertained thinking you like me or you like the sermon. I want you to like Jesus and be full of his love and grace and mercy and tenderness. And so may you come here on Sunday mornings hungry. May you leave here full of God. And I want to say this, as it regards Bible reading, I am not so much asking you to read this book I am not so much asking you to know the facts in this book. I am calling on you, church, to eat this book. Ingest it. Marinate your soul in it. Soak your mind in it. We don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Are there miracles I want to see in my life? Absolutely. There's sickness I want to see healed. There's salvation I want to see come to my family. There's revival I want to see happen in this community. There's reconciliation I want to see happen in this church. And it will take a spectacular display of miraculous mercy if any of those things are going to happen. Do I want to see miracles happen? Yes. Do I pray for miracles to happen? Yes. But sometimes he says, CT, all you need is the still, small voice of my word. Live on my word. Eat my word. And come hell or high waters or Jezebel or Ahab or whatever, you will be okay. Eat my word. How does God respond to us in our brokenness and disappointment? He shows us that he has a heart of understanding. He shows us that his word is enough. And finally, he shows us that his plan is unstoppable. His plan is unstoppable. So after God shares his quiet but clear word with Elijah, Elijah covers his face, realizing he's in God's holy presence. Then once more, the Lord asks Elijah, what are you doing here? Once more, Elijah answers with his frustrated complaint. I have been very zealous, very jealous for you, the Lord, the God of hosts. This time, God responds by giving Elijah a new task. He tells Elijah to go to Damascus in Syria to anoint Hazael, the new king over Syria. He tells him to go to Jezreel and anoint Jehu in replacement of King Ahab as the next king over Israel, the northern kingdom. And then he tells him to anoint Elisha as the next prophet to replace himself. So this is God agreeing with Elijah's complaint that God's people are covenant breakers. This is God moving forward his plan to punish his people for their sin with these new leaders being brought in place. Because when Hazael becomes king over Israel, he will eventually attack and take over the northern kingdom. And Jehu, King Ahab's replacement, will bring Israel in subservience to Syria. So these new leaders are God's appointed means of punishing the sin of his people and helping bring awareness to them that they need to repent. And the punishment is going to be severe, so severe, God says in verse 17, the one who escapes the sword of King Hazael shall Jehu put to death. The one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. In other words, everybody's going to die. Everyone's going to face God's judgment because the, people is, the people's idolatry is so intense and so widespread. No one will escape. If you escape Hazael, Jehu will get you. If you escape Jehu, Elisha will get you. That's how thoroughly God's judgment is going to move forward. And yet, verse 18 concludes, despite the coming wrath being so sufficient, God promises, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, 7,000 whose knees have not bowed to Baal, 7,000 whose mouths have not kissed the false god. So this is God affirming for Elijah, my plan can't be stopped. Despite Ahab's continued rebellion, despite the widespread idolatry, I am setting up new kings and new prophets who will be the means of my coming judgment. 
And yet, despite that judgment, I will keep 7,000 who never bowed to the false gods. This is God's comfort for Elijah in his despair. My plan can't be stopped. I am not losing, Elijah. I am not losing. And hear this, friends. The greatest demonstration that God's plan can't be stopped is the cross of Jesus. In 1 Kings chapter 19, yes, Elijah is right. Things look really bad. They look so bad, Elijah says that he's the only one left believing in the Lord. Things look so bad, Elijah says, just take my life, Lord. What's the point? But friends, never did things look so bad as when Jesus hung from the cross. It looked like then that God's plan had been stopped. God's plan is not working because God's son is being murdered. And yet in the wisdom of God, what looked like our defeat is our redemption. What looked like our defeat is our triumph. We cherish the cross not as a symbol of our defeat. We cherish the cross as the symbol of our victory. This darkest of nights, the worst thing that could possibly happen is for God to come to us in the flesh and yet we crucify him. The worst thing that could possibly happen, happened. And yet God is working all things for the good of those who love him. And yet what Satan meant for evil, God uses it for good. Friends, God's plan can't be stopped. The same is true in 1 Kings 19. Yes, to Elijah, God's plans may appear to be frustrated, but God is still all wise, God is still completely sovereign, and his plans are completely unstoppable. His plans are always being fulfilled, even if things look as bad as Jesus being crucified. So I ask you, Christian, where in your life do you see things breaking down? What in your life is causing you Elijah-like disappointment? In other words, what in your life is causing you to want to give up? To pray like Elijah. It's over. It's hopeless, God. What in your life is breaking down? Maybe it's your body breaking down. Maybe it's relationships breaking down. Maybe your job is breaking down. It could be any number of these things that just are not going to plan. And so, church, I call on you. Look to 1 Kings 19 and the testimony of our brother Elijah. But more importantly, look to the cross of Christ and know that God's plans are unstoppable. He will fulfill his purposes in and through you, even if it means great disappointment. Passion for God does not excuse us from major disappointment. Oh, I hope you have a passion for God. I hope there's something in you stirring that will not let you quit God. You're jealous for Him. Jesus is too magnetic, too compelling. You're passionate about Him. I hope you're passionate about God, but I hope you also know that passion for God does not excuse us from great disappointment, but God doesn't leave us in our disappointment. We see here, he shows us tenderness, compassion, and understanding. He invites us to open the dark corners of our soul to him, and he gives us his word to feed our empty souls, to strengthen our spirits. And he assures us that no matter how bad things are, his will, his counsel, his purposes will stand forever. His plans are ever moving forward, no matter how dark the night may be that we're walking through. And so, saints, let's take heart. Saints, let's be encouraged. Saints, let's continue to stir up the zeal of the Lord despite the disappointments we've been through, despite the disappointments that are ahead. May God's word nourish us through these times of trial 
And may we remember our brother and remember the cross of Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to God's word together. Have a moment of silent reflection, and then I'll lead us in prayer. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of Elijah, the Lord, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you in the name of him who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods, Christ Jesus. We hail allegiance to him. We swear by him, our only King. God, we thank you for the good news of his life, death, and resurrection. This good news that is sounded around the world and reached us here in this corner of Michigan. God, we are grateful for your tender mercies. You have given us the right to become children of God through the cross. And you tell us, that you are, as a father, compassionate to his children. And so right now, God, we open up our hearts to your loving kindness. We receive your gracious presence. We ask for your renewing spirit that we may continue our pilgrimage, that we may move forward in our sojourn. Father, I pray for every saint here who is suffering. I pray for every saint here who is discouraged that you would lift our eyes, you would lift our heads, you would strengthen our bones, and we would continue to go after Jesus until the end. God, bless your people with endurance. God, bless your people with the grace of faith to know that despite our terrible circumstances, despite our disappointed feelings, you are still with us. You are still working. You are still working. Even though I don't see it, you're still working. Even though I don't feel it, you're still working. Even though we're still waiting, you're still working. God, help us to believe. Help us to believe. We join our brother Elijah. We join the saints all around the world from every tribe, tongue, and nation in Thailand and China and wherever else, crying out to you. You are the same God. Answer our prayers as you did back then. We believe in Christ's name, amen.